Welcome to the Plymouth Meeting Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope the following message touches your hearts and minds. And I just wanted to tell you that today's sermon, um, I wasn't sure what, what this topic would be the last Sunday of October, uh, but during a devotional time, I just there was something uh, that just kind of really jumped out at me, and that ended up just exploding into what became this sermon today. So I just wanted to share that with you, that this comes out of a, a devotional time uh, that I was having with, with God. And so um, I had a lot given to me, and what ended up happening was I had to kind of cut this sermon in two. And so whether we'll, we'll do part two next week or we'll skip and do it later, because next week is uh, Gratitude Sunday, Harvest Sunday. So there, there might be some uh, discrepancies here or like, uh, you know, just trying to figure out the, the sermon flow with all of that. I have to figure that out. We'll, we'll see how things all shake out. But for today, uh, we are going to be in John 13. And today's sermon title is called Upper Room Experiences. Okay, so let me ask, uh, what does it take to fire up a church? What what does it take to activate Christians? What does it take to motivate people to break out of comfort zones and keep leaning in to this like everyday missionary lifestyle that we we touch on? You know, it's just like, you know, this intentionality that that we can do. We don't need to just wait until we go on a short-term mission trip to be missionaries, but wherever we go... We can be intentional with what we're doing. So what does it take to, to keep activating us towards that direction? We could probably talk about that for hours, like what motivates humans and everything, what hinders us. But I think one of the big answers is this. We need real experiences with Jesus. And one of the best ways, one of the greatest ways that we can experience Jesus is through the Bible. I think we can experience Jesus through the love of others and in community and stuff like that. But the, the Bible is a really big voice. The Bible is a really big part of experiencing Jesus. And here I'll say, you know, the Bible is not just something that we read, but I truly believe it is something that we experience. The Bible is something that, that we need to grapple with. I really like that, that expression, this idea of grappling with the Bible. To be a, a reader of the Bible is to enter into a world of, a world of narrative with, with lots of metaphor and images and symbols. And sometimes we see there's a deeper meaning going on behind the text. And so like a diamond, we can look at a diamond and just see, wow, like it is sparkly. That's a pretty diamond. We can look at it up close and it's, we can see it. We can see the, the clarity of it. We can also turn the diamond and, and we can look at it through different angles, the different facets there, how it's reflecting light. It's just amazing. And I think that's, that's a good illustration of, of how we can look at the Bible is that it, there's different facets. We, we can kind of turn at it. Look at, look at it from different angles. And so I want to be clear, you know, the, the Bible isn't just a, a full set of rigid old stories that we just kind of keep telling ourselves, but the Bible is alive. The Bible has a way of connecting us to the world of the Bible 
and it connects to our world today. And this isn't magic, okay? We're not just making this up. The Holy Spirit is involved. When you sit down and you engage with the Holy Text, the Holy Spirit is there bringing illumination. So again, we, we are invited not simply to just read the word, but to experience it. And so today, we're starting a, a two-part uh, sermon by taking a look at a portion of the upper room story in John chapter 13. And we're looking at this because I believe it's going to help posture us as we actively relate to Jesus and as we continue to actively represent Jesus as his church in southeastern Pennsylvania. And so for those who like who like a good illustration to get started, I think of like a theater. Imagine if, if the Jesus story was a play, all the lights are going dark, there's no other side drama going on, there's no side characters here, it's the upper room story where everything's dark except the focus spotlights just kind of shining in on Jesus having supper, reclining at the table with his disciples, okay? When we get to the, the upper room sequences, it's just... It is so focused on Jesus. All the focus is on Jesus. The upper room is like protected Jesus time. So Jesus has been training his disciples. And they're near the end of their training. Timeline speaking, it won't be that much longer until they are released to be leaders of the church, apostles, uh, you know, just the, the missionaries, they are sent out. It's really not that long from, from now, from the upper room to when they are just kicking butt for Jesus. It's just weeks away, okay? But in this upper room scene, hours away from his death, this is the last meal. Some of the last lessons, the last hours that Jesus is going to spend with his disciples, his buddies, his companions. And they are going to have a deep, meaningful experience with Jesus in that room. And so my hope is that for today and when we whenever we do part 2 is that we can experience the text in a way that shapes our lives into deeper and deeper meaning. And so I hope we we all can just be open to Jesus and his word today. That out of experiencing Jesus in the upper room, we too can be released into deeper and deeper everyday life ministry. And so let's take a look at the story. I'm going to read the story straight through. I deliberately didn't put the words on the screen. I'm going to read it out loud. Take it in. So now's your chance to get a little extra comfy just to be ready to, to take in John 13, 1 to 25. It was before the festival of Passover. Jesus knew that his time had come, the time for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. He had always loved his own people in the world. Now he loved them right through to the end. It was supper time. The devil had already put the idea of betraying him into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. So he got up from the supper table, 
took off his clothes, his outer garments, and wrapped a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a bowl, and he washed the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that he was wrapped in. He came to Simon Peter. Master, said Peter, what's this? You, washing my feet? You don't understand yet what I'm doing, replied Jesus. But you'll know afterward. I'm not going to have you washing my feet, said Peter. Never. If I don't wash you, you don't belong to me, Jesus said. All right then, master, said Simon Peter. But not only my feet, wash my hands and my head as well. Someone who has washed, said Jesus to him, doesn't need to wash again except for their feet. They are clean all over, and you are clean, but not all of you. Jesus knew, you see, who was going to betray him. That's why he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, he put on his clothes and sat down again. Do you know what I've done to you? He asked. You call me teacher and master, and you are right. That's what I am. Well, then, if I, as your master and teacher, washed your feet just now, you should wash each other's feet. I've given you a pattern so that you can do things in the same way that I did to you. I'm telling you a solemn truth, he continued. The slave isn't greater than the master. People who are sent are not greater than the person who sends them. If you know these things... God's blessing on you if you do them. I'm not talking about all of you, he went on. I know the ones I've chosen. What the Bible says has to come true. The person who ate my bread lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am who I am. I'm telling you the solemn truth. Anyone who welcomes someone I send welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. After saying uh, this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he told them why. I'm telling you the truth, he said. One of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other in shock, wondering who he could be talking about. One of the disciples, the one Jesus specially loved, was reclining at table close beside him. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask who it was he was talking about. So, leaning back back against Jesus' chest, he asked him, Who is it, Master? So that is the text, the story that we're looking at today. And so it's Passover time, which immediately we pause Passover, that's a big historical event. I won't take time to go into it right now. Big historical event when God saves Israel. There's a Passover lamb, there's a meal, lots of history, lots of symbolism flying around. So Passover just sets the context of the story. We are in Jerusalem, we are in a house, we are in the upper room of this house. Jesus is in town to celebrate. And we're told, we're informed That this is Jesus' hour. Jesus was well aware of his hour. And so as we dig into this scene, 
The first thing I would like to point out is this. Jesus is keenly aware of the hour, and still he chooses to love fully. So hour here, the way that John is using this, this is not a 60-minute hour. Hour is symbolic. This is a special season of time. Okay, the, the hour is the redemptive act of Jesus. From his arrest to, to the, the trials, the death, resurrection, the ascension, the hour of, of Jesus. And the point is this. Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus knows who he is. He knows where he came from. He knows where he is going. Jesus also knows the extent of his authority. The Father has placed all things into the hands of Jesus. And so, Jesus, he has authority. Jesus has power. It's soon time to go. How is Jesus going to live? What is Jesus going to do? He's going to let love lead the way. Having loved his own, he's going to love them to the end. He's going to show his disciples the fullest measure of love. And for us, you know, we're not Jesus, okay? We're not Jesus, and we're not aware of the hour we're in. But we are invited to trust in Jesus right now. Jesus who holds all things. All things have been placed into Jesus' hands. In the midst of our hours, something that we, we can speak about is that we know that the devil is scheming hardcore. But we trust in this good news and we speak it out. We say this, my Jesus is in control. And because Jesus is in charge, we can be free to let love lead as well. It's Christ's love in us that comes out. And if we can do our best to love all the way to the end, whatever that actually means or whatever that actually looks like in our life, I know the more we love and the more we, we try to give the fullest measure of love, I know the devil hates that. But there is a heart issue in this. There's a heart issue in this. When we fail to trust in, the, in, in Jesus' control, somehow that affects our ability to love. When we fail to fully believe that Jesus is in control, we reel back some of our love. And maybe it's like this. Eh, I, I don't really trust that all things have been placed in Jesus' hands. Have you seen the news? That's confusing. So I'm just going gonna, gonna to hold back a little bit. Or we can believe this. We can know it to be true. That regardless of what we see in the news, in our lives, we come to the word of God that is living and active. And the word says that Jesus is in charge. And he has already validated that people are worthy of love. Jesus has authority. Jesus has power. He's in the know. He's in control. And he is going to love. And how does he show that? He lowers himself. Which brings up the next observation. That Jesus is the example of loving humility. In both Jewish and Greek culture, a foot washer... That is a low and despised role, typically reserved for, for slaves. This would be outrageous and shocking to see Jesus do. 
like ridiculous. Jesus takes off his outer garment. He lowers himself and he took on the nature of a servant. And for those who know the letter to the Philippians, this actually sounds familiar a little bit. Like, like God taking off his status, humbling himself to serve. Jesus, he takes off his outer garment. He prepares himself to be a foot washer. And he washes his disciples' feet. Think about that. Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And when he was done, he would return to his, his spot at the table. Jesus would go on and make himself very clear that this is what he was doing. He's setting an example. This is a pattern that they can do. They can wash each other's feet. Okay? Now, also note, Jesus knew betrayal was hiding in Judas's heart. Judas got his feet washed. So this is Passover, right? We know there's probably around a million and a half people or more. Maybe two million people in the city. The city is maxed out with people. Think of all the dirt, extra garbage, feces, okay? Jesus is there washing their feet. Foot washing isn't as culturally relevant for us today, but let us not miss the point. What are the dirty things in this world that culture or religion tells us to stay away from? And here's one way I think could be a, a modern form of, of foot washing. There's trauma, drama, and mess in people's lives. So perhaps engaging in the hot mess of other people's lives and lending a supporting and listening ear, that's one way that we could be foot washers today. That, that we see the example of foot washing we don't literally turn around and wash somebody's feet, although we could, but we look at the character that is behind what is happening. What is the character and the integrity? Like, like what is on display? Let me now put that through a version, through a phone call, and just listening to somebody. Listening for needs, words of encouragement that you could give. And so like Jesus, we are called in loving humility to forego our status. And we put this pattern on display too. We, we embrace in the hot mess of other people's lives. And so, you know, when you want to run away from a moment, use that moment right there. Perhaps that's God's way of saying, hey, I'm in charge. Lean into my control. Don't run away from this moment. In fact, actually... Be prepared to watch grace and love just pour out. And Jesus is probably going to say, it's not going to be pretty because it's very messy. Jesus is an expert in messy situations. As we imitate Jesus, we don't do this alone. Jesus himself is with us and he gives us his word. <coughs> Brings up point three. Please know Know that Jesus and his word are a purifying, cleansing force. You see, Peter at first objected to Jesus' foot washing. Okay? And then he kind of swung to the other side. He's like, don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands. Wash my head as well. Okay? Let's find a fire hydrant. Like, hose me down, Jesus. 
Jesus says, Peter, you're already clean. And we find out later, this is why they're clean. Okay, so there's metaphor. There's, there's a couple different things happening here, okay? So this is where we need to just not just read the text, but we experience it. We engage with it. We're looking at the story. Later, we find out in John chapter 15. So this is outside of what we read today. But Jesus already said, you guys are clean because you have received my word. You you are clean because you have received the word that I've spoken to you. That's what makes them clean. They received the words of Jesus. They believe in his good news. They do what he says. They listen to him. I want to emphasize Romans 10, 17 here. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. So church, hear and believe the good words of the Bible, the gospel and the words of Jesus. Let yourself be open and let the word soak into all parts of who you are, all the nooks and crannies. All those hard to reach places, let, let the water and the words of Jesus splash you. And so in this metaphor, the disciples, spiritually, they've already taken a bath. Eleven of them have. Okay, they have taken a spiritual bath. In other words, they're saved, as we would just say it simply, to keep it simple. They are saved. They've had a sufficient bath. They don't need to take another one. A little foot washing is all they need. Okay, and this is a, a this symbol is a is pointing to the ongoing work of Jesus's cleansing and forgiveness here. His words are cleansing; it's a purifying force. His words bring a spiritual cleansing, and those who stay clean, those who are refreshed in the words of Jesus, as we find out in John fifteen, those are the ones who abide. Those are the ones who bear fruit. So now there's like two metaphors that are mixing together, but we'll just, we won't, we won't dig into that. Let's talk about feet a little bit more. You guys love talking about feet. In ancient Jewish culture, there is a connection between sandals and transactions, okay? It was a custom to trade sandals when you made a deal, okay? I'm glad we don't do that today. I don't want your sandals, When you make a deal, if you're like redeeming property, you take off your sandal and you trade. Okay. Ruth chapter four. Check it out later. You'll see it. For the redemption of Ruth to be finalized, Boaz had to make a deal with the guardian redeemer. That guardian redeemer takes off his sandal and he's like, here you go. It's a legit transaction. Okay. There's other connections between feet and Receiving, like, an inheritance, okay? When Moses was before the burning bush, he was about to receive a new commission, a new inheritance, so to speak. What does God say to him? Take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. In Joshua chapter 1, God tells Joshua, hey, wherever you place your feet, guess what? I'm going to give that place to you. Like, wherever you go, that's like... The inheritance is being received, just as I promised Moses, okay? So feet, sandals, inheritance, there's there's connection here. And I think we can can kind of sit on that imagery a little bit. Take a look at point four, that, that Jesus is preparing his believers for new covenant inheritance. There is a new command 
that he's going to give them. There's a new commission that he's going to send them out with. There's a new covenant now that he is cutting hours from now when he goes to the cross. Okay, Jesus is preparing his disciples by taking off their sandals and washing their feet. He's preparing them for a new holiness, a new authority, a new inheritance that they will be receiving. So perhaps this is why when Peter objected, Jesus said, unless I wash your feet, you can have no part with me. You can't have a share with me, no partnership, no inheritance with me. Now, remember, Peter's already clean. Don't read that as in like you're not saved, Peter. Okay, no, that Peter's salvation is not at stake here. But what is is having a share with Jesus, this this lifestyle, this partnership, this fellowship with Jesus. Okay, so we arrive on this truth. Life is dirty. Life is dirty. If you are a Christian, if you've had that that sufficient bath, you said yes to Jesus, you've nailed it down with Jesus, okay? Like, symbolically, Jesus has washed you. He's washed your heart, he's washed your mind, you are set free, you're a Christian, you're saved, born again from above, all that good stuff, right? If you are a Christian, you don't need to keep getting saved and baptized, saved and baptized, saved and baptized over and over again. But what you need is some foot washing. And this is what I think is going on in this metaphor. Brothers and sisters, if we step in a big old pile of sin, and if we just keep walking in it, well, guess what? That sin, that sin jam between our toes, <laughs> that, that hinders us from experiencing new life with Jesus. I'm not saying you lose your salvation. Again, that's not on the table. But when the, the more we, we get dirtied up and we don't do anything about it, the more we stay soiled. We're, we, we miss out on new covenant experiences today. And the devil, he's the one, he keeps pointing. He's like, look, look how dirty you are. Remember your past? Remember who you used to be? Okay. Jesus is the one who can wash your feet. Jesus is the one who can wash your feet so that you two can have deep and rich fellowship together. So that you can stand on holy ground with Jesus. He walks with me and he talks with me and he calls me his own, right? So brothers and sisters, get right with Jesus. Get right with Jesus. He wants to wash your feet. Romans 5, 1-2 says, We've been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Right? Get right with Jesus. Let Jesus wash your feet. Jesus is faithful to forgive and cleanse, and he will wash all the dirt away. He'll take all the broken glass out of your toes, he wants to wash your feet. And this isn't just rhetoric. This is something you can experience. You come to Jesus. You say, Jesus, I'm all sinned up. Remind me of my, of my identity. I'm tired of sinship. 
I want sonship. I want daughtership. <laughs> Ask Jesus to forgive you and cleanse you. Now, we can read this so, so much as individuals. And yes, for a little bit, it's Jesus and me. But to quote our, one of our former bishops, very quickly it becomes Jesus and we. That we can experience this new life together as a community of clean people. Okay? Now what about Judas? Well, we will pause here with our story. We will pick up with Judas whenever we do part two. But for now, remember this. That the Bible helps us experience Jesus. John 13 invites us into the upper room. As we watched Jesus, we saw a Jesus who's so in control. Jesus is not going to be surprised that he's going to be executed, okay? Jesus is in the know. He chooses to love. He washes feet. This foot washing is an example of humility, is an example of love. Jesus and his words, they're a purifying, cleansing force. We get to go to Jesus and we say, Jesus, forgive me. Clean me up. I'm sorry. I repent. Help me to change my mind. Help me to keep growing. I, like, I'm, I'm done with this. I just want to keep growing in my new identity, my new personhood, church, our churchmanship. Just like we want to keep growing as a church. It's not just same old, same old, but it's a cleansing, identity shaping force that we have access to. And so let us trust and his power, and his authority, and control. Let us imitate his love. Let us imitate his humility. Take in his, take in his word, his identity-changing, cleansing word. And have faith that Jesus is faithful to forgive you of your sin. Because he wants to do life with you. He wants to participate with you. Or rather, he wants you to participate with what he is doing in the world. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news.